The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. This is our father. Can you help us find him, please? can't tell what they're saying. I can. They speak color. Oh, he did? Oh, really? Oh, don't Yep, he was here. They saw him tesser here. But he continued to explore, they say. Somewhere in that direction. Let's go! Hey y'all, this is Represent, and I'm Aisha Harris. So, I know we just told you in the last episode that we'll be taking a bit of a break, and we are, sort of. But we couldn't not talk about A Wrinkle in Time and a box office history that was made this past weekend. So, Verilyn and I are here to do just that. Hi, Verilyn. Hi, Aisha. <laughs> <laughs> Later, we'll also share a conversation I had live at the Speak Up, Rise Up Festival last summer with BuzzFeed's Bin Araume and Represent Fave Latino USA's Antonia Serajito about film and TV characters that hurt us to watch. But first, A Wrinkle in Time. what are your thoughts (laughs) okay so it's funny because every um group text i have that lately have been talking about this everyone is like no one wants to say they don't like it everyone is like it was you know very good for children it was very inspirational but no one is saying like that was really hard to sit through um (laughs) and i'm not gonna break that trend (laughs) it was beautiful to watch um, I didn't read the book, so I don't have that emotional attachment to the storyline. I guess in, if I had to give a critique, I would say I wish that there was more plot. Are, are you sure you don't mean like more? Because um, there was a lot of plot. They were going from one place to the next. Well, I guess investment in the character. So like the right. um, Calvin, who is her friend, who ends up going with her on this adventure to find her dad, which I don't think is a spoiler. Like that's what the whole movie's about. I wish that they had given us something to invest in him to like, I feel like he kind of pops in and I and, don't care about him. Well, yeah, because he's, he doesn't even start off as her friend. He just starts off as the kid who for whatever reason has probably never spoken to her before. Never and then before. all of a sudden is like roped in. And I will say that the, the, the it's kind of treated in a whimsical way, whereas it's, it's suggested that the younger brother, um, Charles Wallace is uh has summoned him because he's like good at diplomacy but it, it's mm-hmm. it's suggested weird. it's suggested yeah but like it's you still don't understand why this kid is all of a sudden head over heels in love with with uh our lead protagonist but i will say having a young black girl meg murphy played by storm reed at the center of a fantasy story is amazing to see and we won't know for years what impact that representation will have right and 
thankfully, I mean, the movie did not do gangbusters. It is not Black Panther, but then nothing, nothing, not much, not much will be. Yeah. But it did do well enough where it was the top for the first time in history. We have the top two films in the country were directed by black filmmakers. Yeah, and one of them was a woman, which That's is amazing. which is great. And one of them had a black female protagonist. Well, I mean, they both do, but this one, yeah. she was the center of yeah. the story. So I think that's a great thing, and I think that it is a good movie for kids, not necessarily adults, and there's that's that's fine. That is fine. There are movies that are only going to appeal to children, Yeah, and I'm totally fine with that. Absolutely. And I know that you did a whole spoiler special on Slay Spoiler Special yes. <laughs> podcast. So Yes, we'll, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. But myself, uh, Slate's movie critic Dana Stevens, and Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor, and all of us, we talked about it in depth, and you can hear all of my qualms <laughs> with the movie there. And I also yeah. reviewed it on Slate, so we'll put both of those links there. Yeah, so, so we're not going to get too, too into the details because I think... We've both talked a lot about this, either in our friend group or professionally. But, you know, we, we spent two weeks talking about Black Panther. You're right. And we had to at least acknowledge, <laughs> yes. even though we're on technically kind of on a hiatus, we had to acknowledge that this is a movie that is very important. And I think if I was 11 or 12, I would this movie would be the world to me. Yeah, so. I think even if I had brought my niece to see it, I think that would have meant a lot. You know, like watching her watch it would have felt like the payoff I needed. Mm -hmm. But one of the people I unpacked this film with over food and drinks is a mentor friend of mine, Rebecca Carroll, who's over at WNYC. And she pointed me to Ashley Ford's tweet. Now, Ashley is at I Smash Frizzle, and she says, just got out of A Wrinkle in Time, and I feel like Ava made a movie I've been waiting for my entire life. This is not hyperbole. Ashley goes on to say that, I watched the entire movie with my chest tight, afraid if I look away, if I blink, I would lose access to the world that seemed to understand why a girl like me needs to believe in the ferocity of my own heart and the power of my light. Now, first of all, that writing is amazing. Yes. And um, from what Rebecca was explaining to me, and I've now read two of Ashley's essays online, she's written a lot about growing up without her father. And so if this film... If she can watch this film and feel that type of representation, which is not really about a person, right? It's more about a feeling. Then that is powerful. And um, I think like that's why we wanted to pair this conversation with our conversation we had at the Speak Up Rise Up Festival. Because you all were talking about things you saw that also invoked some kind of feeling of hurt or sadness. Or shame. Or shame, yeah. Right, right. So... So that'll be the next conversation you hear. And again, it is a conversation I had last summer. So I don't remember if there's anything that's outdated, <laughs> but just just go into it. I went, I went, I've already edited it. I actually <laughs> asked you if you wanted to hear it because you actually, I think for it's interesting because you're not, you're, you're a critic. And so you don't always share your personal experiences. Like, like literally like this happened to me and this is how I feel about it, like going deep into it. So I think listeners will be like, it's like a new side of Aisha a little bit. Okay, I guess I got personal. <laughs> uh, yes, I do remember that being the case, although I didn't feel like it was that different. People know I have a dog and they know I'm dark and cynical. Mm. <laughs> it was about like, you know, growing up in a predominantly white school. Everyone knows that. But it was your... <laughs> I had a conversation with... Um, <laughs> Prentice Penny about going to Jack and Jill, remember? Oh, I do remember that. I it, love when you do that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> myself, Antonia Sarahito, and Bim Adewumwe. Who now has a podcast called The um, the Thirst Aid Kit? 
thirst aid kit. Yes. And it's very apparent in this conversation that she was going to go off to make that podcast. <laughs> we love you, Bim. And Antonia. <laughs> anyway, check it out. Enjoy. And as usual, thanks for listening, y'all. Yes. So... I'm sure a lot of you have seen Girls Trip. We talked about it a lot on the show. And we're not going to be talking about Girls Trip today, but Girls Trip did make me think uh, a bit recently about what we're talking about tonight. Essentially, I was on an episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour recently alongside a friend of mine, Gene Demby, who's over at NPR Code Switch. And he brought up a good point, which was that Tiffany Haddish's character, you know, 10 years ago, the chances of her being received the way she is are much lower. Uh, we would think of her as like a bad representation of, of what black women can be. And it made me think like, yeah, like a lot of people probably would have written think pieces, protested, why is she, why does she have to be so loud and brash? And there are these questions that I had about what we make of these representations. And it brought me to the concept of shame. And I personally have had uh, a lot of things to deal with growing up, especially I grew up in a predominantly white setting uh, as a kid. And I'll talk about, about that later. And I should probably like see a therapist to talk about it as well, but I'm doing pretty well right now. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about tonight is the idea of representations that have made us feel ashamed or humiliated or embarrassed. And so we're going to get this started. Our first uh, guest is a friend of mine. She is a friend of the show. She's the host of the Mike podcast, a financial advisory podcast called The Payoff. She's also a producer at NPR's Latino USA. Welcome, Antonia Sarahito. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's been a long time since we have you on the show, so I'm glad we can make it happen. And our second guest tonight is Bim Adewume. She is a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and I think the last time I saw her, we were actually singing a song from the Whitney Houston movie, Waiting to Exhale. Uh, so, Bim, come on out. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, what was the song we were singing? Was it the last song? By Whitney Houston and... C.C. Winans. C.C. Winans, yes. That was on the Another Round podcast. Yes, it uh, was. Like over a year ago. Yes, it was. Yes. So, <laughs> it's great to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. So... Let's just kick it off. Antonia, do you want to talk about the thing that made you feel embarrassed or humiliated when you were younger? Did you, did either of you watch Even Stevens growing up? Yes, I did. Were you fans? I was a huge fan. I watched it with my little brother, but then I, I began to watch it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was a huge fan of Ren. I was obsessed with her. She was like, because she was like nerdy and she liked to read books. And she had a younger brother who annoyed her. And I was like, this is me. Uh, and so when I first watched the episode that we're going to watch the clip from, I was completely crestfallen. Ren, did you get a chance to read my gossip column? No, but I'm sure it's going to be just fine. Well, I, I kind of thought you'd want to sign off on it before we print it for all the world to see. Okay, just give me the highlights. Okay, uh, Doyle Taylor has a crush on Stacey Funk. Marvin Hanks was spotted at the Wax Shack with Frida Richards. And... And? And Mandy Sanchez has a crush on Bobby Diva. You mean Mandy always gets her man Sanchez has a crush on Bobby? 
I'm really sorry, Wrench. Should I kill the story? I was like, no, her enemy can't be Latina. This is terrible. <laughs> there were like no Latinas on TV and the one person is like Ren's enemy. I was like, no. And this was like in the aughts, right? Like the yeah. early aughts. So there definitely were barely any. No, the next one was Miranda on Lizzie McGuire and she was better. But th- that was like the only Latina representation. And I re- actually, I remember it being Mandy Steal Your Man Sanchez, which goes to show like how ingrained in my head that was. But I think that very often the narrative is that Latinos are taking something that's not actually theirs. How, how often did she... I don't even remember her as a character. Like, do you, was she, she was in two episodes, but okay. they were like... They stuck, they stuck in my brain. Yeah. When you first encountered it, you were like, what, in middle school, high school? When that, with this? Yeah. 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 So was that something you co- constantly had to deal with? Was like being accused of like trying to take someone else's man? No, I've never, I've never okay. been accused of that. Okay. <laughs> but I just, I, really <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? uh, no, uh, I think that it's, it's just like I became really aware of the idea of like some, something is rightfully somebody's and mm-hmm. something is not. And I was like, maybe Bobby and, and Mandy have a great connection and like Ren could chill out too. I don't know. <laughs> a great connection. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Mandy's life. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, this whole concept of like stealing someone uh and having that associated with like an entire population is well now i mean what is the class they're stealing our jobs yes exactly yeah. now how have you come to terms with with mandy steal your man or not steal your man what it was it always gets her man. always it gets it shows man. like how i like totally rewrote it in my head yes yeah yeah have i come to terms with it yeah, I guess. I don't know. No, I'm still talking about it to this day. Like, what is this crazy? <laughs> well, it's true because you actually, I remember we talked about this briefly on the very first yes. episode of Represent. Um, and that I didn't even, like, have to, like, I asked you to be on this show now. But, like, then I wasn't asking you to come up with something and, and the, that was what you came up with. So, yeah, it clearly lingers. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even, like, the, you know, Sofia Vergara is one of the highest paid actresses on TV and she plays that character too of like this like sexy woman who like has the most average, in fact, like kind of dumpy husband, but like the, the daughter feels like competitive with her and you're like, why is there this competition that, that doesn't need to exist? I think that's the other thing. It's the competitive aspect mm-hmm. of like, what are you both going for? Like, yeah. why is it that one or the other has to have the thing? Why can't you share? Well, obviously they can't share Bobby. <laughs> But like, well, some people can share, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But I, so I think that it's always this sort of like, this Latinos are presented as something that's desirable, but also like wrong. Yeah. Like that is good, but also in a way that is like you shouldn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, I remember feeling those feelings of like being confused about how like, how Latina sexuality is being presented as like some forbidden thing that is like, is alluring, but also like, not good for you. So, Bim. Yes. What is your story? Who knows, man? Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, just tell me. I mean, so the, the clip that is going to show. Um, this, so first of all, I struggled with trying to come up with like, my earliest memory of feeling uh, embarrassment or shame or whatever. And I couldn't find one. And then I thought, when I was talking to my friend who I um, sometimes creepily refer to as my soul in another body, um, so I was talking with her and we, we both love this film very much um, but I was thinking so this wasn't necessarily one of my earliest things but it's something that has been 
it's come up over and over again for me personally. Um, and I remember once when I was uh, back home in London a few years ago, and I was uh, with my friend who is Italian, um, L, and she, <laughs> we were we were in a pub somewhere in East London, it's Friday night, you know the usual. And this is when I was in my twenties, I think. Yeah, my twenties. And she, you know, we ended up chatting to this guy at the bar. Then his friend came, and we were chatting with him. And in my mind, I was being suave and just incredibly alluring, you know, <laughs> like interested, interesting, all the, you know, the usual. And then, you know, Ella and I went to the loo <laughs> and then she was like, oh, do you, do you like him? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And then she looked at me and she goes, oh, then you should flirt. And I was like, oh, I... That's <laughs> That's, that's not that's not what you're doing. That, that's what I was doing. <laughs> it's been forty-five minutes of hard work. Like what? <laughs> and she was, and then she gave me this look, and she was like, "Oh, <laughs> like okay." And then I was crushed. I was like, "That was some of my best fucking work. How dare you?" <laughs> and that's when it be, that's when it really came home to me. And I was like, "Oh, I I don't know how to flirt. Like I'm really bad at this. Like." And that's really weird for me because I have like incredible high self-esteem and like <laughs> I have very strong belief that I'm beautiful and smart. And Are you sure she wasn't trying to neg you? No, she wasn't. Like she's dear okay. to me. She, okay. she would never. This right. wasn't like one of those weird friend of me things. Like she's okay. a good friend. Right. So, and that was her being honest and being kind. Like, oh, okay. You know, like <laughs> E for effort. And I was like, cheers, babes. Um, so, <laughs> so I've always been very aware of the fact that there are baskets in my life where I put like the highest of my self-esteem and my, my idea of self-worth um, and a lot of it comes from I think my parents loving me so and liking me <laughs> more <good>. importantly like <laughs> so I was always very assured that my parents liked me as well as loved me and that gave me like a real kind of boost walking into the world my dad is he's a Nigerian man and he is perhaps in my life, the first feminist I ever knew, like the greatest person. And he always said to us about, in a very matter of fact way, so not even like in a bigging you up way, just kind of like, oh, you're, you know, you're very smart um, all my life. So I was like, I'm smart. You can't tell me shit. Like the one place in my <laughs> life where I am never in doubt is my work. Um, <laughs> that's how I feel. Like every time I'm kind of like, no, 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 you can say anything, but you're not going to come at me for words. Like I'm good at this. Don't in your life ever come for that. Um, but where I am the complete opposite is with, like, dudes. Um, so anyway, when I watched this <laughs> clip of this film from this clip we're about to watch, so I don't know if anyone has seen this. It's um, a film from the 90s called The Truth About Cats and Dogs. <sighs> How old are you guys? I feel like you're all about my age. Because people younger are like, huh? And I'm like, <laughs> ah, okay. Um, so it's a film starring Janine Garofalo and Uma Thurman and Ben Chaplin, who is still really, really handsome. Basically, okay, I'll start from the beginning, which I think is the best place to start. So Abby is a radio host and she um, is on doing her radio show one day. She's like a Fraser Crane for dogs. And so <laughs> someone calls in and says, oh, I have a problem with this dog. And she talks it out. The person who calls in is Brian. And he comes to the station the next day, the radio station with the dog to kind of go, thank you so much for helping me with my dog. Um, and she sees him. She sees that, obviously, he's a hottie with a body. And so <laughs> she uh, pushes her new friend, Uma Thurman, and says, you, go be Abby. So obviously, he sees Abby. He's like, oh, look at her. I mean, we have eyes. And uh, the, the, the deception begins. But on the phone, for example, he talks with Abby. But in his mind, Abby looks like Uma Thurman. 
And the Janine Garofalo character is um, the one that I kind of identified with. And this scene in particular was set up, I think, as a very honest, very human thing. But when I watched it, I remember feeling winded because of something that Ben, uh, Ben's character, Brian, said. Who's Donna? There is no Donna. What is this? This is some kind of weird game you two play for kicks. You pick up a guy together and see how much you can screw him up. No, it was just a mistake. Um, a practical joke. No, no, a no, joke. no, 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 not a joke, not a joke. Well, not a joke, it, funny, ha, ha. Funny, strange, if anything. No, I get it, you're a comedy duo. Actually, we never met until just... You're dumb and beautiful and you're smart and... I have to go. I was going to say that your description of yourself sounds like a rom-com. Like, she has everything, except she can't flirt with men. <laughs> I'm writing a screenplay based on my life. No, I'm <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing that got me is the fact that he, he called Uma Thurman, you're dumb and beautiful, and then he looked at Janine Garofalo uh, and said, and you're smart, and, and then he stopped himself. <laughs> and I understand that people get hurt and say things. I, myself, have not a, not a perfect person, and I've said things. But it's interesting that he went for that word and that really stung because I was like, clearly Janine Garofalo is not ugly. And of course he's angry and he's saying things from a place of, you know, blind rage or whatever. But I was like, ah, oh, fuck, like, I'm the Janine Garofalo character. And there's something that I, I've spoken to like a, quite a few black girls about this. More often than not, because there was such a dearth of black characters in so much media, I found myself identifying a lot with brunettes. <laughs> so did I. I was the same way. Alex Mack, I wanted to be her. Right. I was like, oh, brown, that'll do, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it, <laughs> the hair's brown. Yes. Mine's black, but that's closer than blonde. <laughs> um, I have the same logic. Right. I didn't realize that was the I, was, I was talking to, yeah. like, I've spoken to so many black girls, and specifically when we talk about, again, I'm about to show my age, Dawson's Creek, uh, and yeah. how much... Black girls love Joey Potter, even though she's clearly, like, ridiculous. See, someone just said an enthusiastic yes. <laughs> and Joey Potter is, by any measure, the whitest woman alive. She's so white. And yet, yeah. we were like, oh, my God, she's, she sings the song of my heart. Yeah. <laughs> because there was no one. Um, so Janine Garofalo, yeah, is, but she's, you know, she's small. She's clearly cerebral. And I thought I was a very cerebral person. So for me, it was very much like a, sort of like a mirror to kind of look at this Janine character and get like she loves her work. And that's the thing. She really loves her job. She is good at the job. Um, she is, again, she knows on an intellectual level that she has a lot to offer the world. And yet she sees Brian and panics to the point where she pushes her blonde six foot tall friend because she knows that she or she feels that there is something lacking. And that for me was a real moment of, oh my God, same. Yeah. So it was kind of, it, it hurt a little bit to kind of see myself so represented in that way. And I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> the other interesting thing I was, I was Googling uh, and this was, it, at least it was credited to a, a woman writer. Audrey Wells. Yes. Um, I mean, granted in Hollywood, that could mean, you know, lots of people have their hands in it. Yeah, yeah. But... I was just like, huh, this is interesting. It was directed by a man, but like... Yes. Huh. She's written very interesting. She also wrote George of the Jungle. No, I, I don't know movie. if anyone is... No, don't laugh. No. It's, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> I, I haven't... I have not seen it since You I haven't... Was, uh, well, not, not since I was like nine. Watch it again. That Hilarious. It's, it's, but also, really? it, is, it is chock full to the brim of female fucking gays. 
It is astonishing. Yeah. I have never, I have rarely seen. He just seen. wears a loincloth. He right? wears a loincloth. Yeah. And Brendan Fraser back then, Jesus wept. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, my story. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, I went to predominantly white schools. And I will never forget the first time I heard the term wigger. Uh, so Wigger, if you don't know what it is, thankfully no one really uses it anymore. No. That was like a brief heyday in the late 90s, mid-aughts. <laughs> uh, but Wigger is basically supposed to be like a white black person, a white person who quote-unquote acts black. Uh, I mean, white nigger is the, the, uh, the obvious uh, putting together of those words. And I was in like probably fifth or sixth grade, and I remember being on the bus, which is a whole nother, being on the bus as a middle schooler is just like the worst experience ever. I have so many terrible memories about that. But anyway, I remember being on the bus, and there's this white kid who, uh, my school was, we had a lot of Italians uh, at my school, and they liked to think they were black. And they would say, I, I remember this kid saying, you know, like calling another kid like, Man, you're such a wigger. You're such a wigger. And the first time I heard it, I was like, wait, what does he say? Like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Like, is he saying the N-word? What am I going to do? Like, I was, like, freaking out because I was like, <laughs> what do I say about this? And I wasn't going to say anything because I was, like, 12. And that's, that's what I was when I was 12. But I eventually figured it out just by, like, process of elimination and then was mortified to learn what it meant. And there are all these feelings of, like, these white kids don't really like me, but yet, and, and part of it is because I'm black, like they loved all the black boys in my school because they, they played you know, sports, but like as a girl, it's a lot harder when you're in elementary, middle school, even high school, if you're in a predominantly white setting, it's harder to make those friends. And I was just like, why do they, why do they keep using all these terms and like talking about rap music and all this stuff, and yet they like don't want to talk to me. Uh, and so there's this movie <laughs> that does not hold up very well, a teen movie that came out around the time I was in middle school, high school, and it was like always on TBS. I've probably seen it many times, but I recently rewatched it. And it's called Can't Hardly Wait. And it's a classic. It's a, it's a classic. <laughs> it is like I rewatched it. I was like half of like 90 percent of not another teen movie, which is great satire, uh, is basically Can't Hardly Wait. It's that it's that bad of a movie. So there's this character that Seth Green plays called Special K, and he's basically a wigger. And I remember seeing this and being like, like, this is everything I hate about white people. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the introduction of his character, uh, which includes like a special, like the whole, like the aesthetic of the movie was we're going to have yearbook introductions. And so this is the introduction of his character within the like first 10 minutes of the movie. Oh. Yo, I gotta have sex tonight. That's a Tupac quote, if you can't see it. It say here 92% of honeys at UCLA sexually active. 92% of women in Los Angeles at UCLA walking around going, class or sex? What shall I do? 92%, yo. You know what that means, don't you? Huh. That means I got some 92% chance of embarrassing myself. I roll up on that shorty like, what's up, yo? She be like, oh, yeah. you don't know 20 different ways to make me call you Big Papa? Because I don't, yo. Rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. So, other 
that's just the tip of the iceberg. It gets worse as the movie goes on. Uh, by the end, like midway through the movie, so the, the whole conceit of Can't Hardly Wait is it's the la- like everyone just graduated from high school. They're about to go to college, and it's an ensemble movie. There's so many people from the, like, I was rewatching it. It's like Donald Faison from Scrubs is in it. Uh, obviously, Jennifer Love Hewitt plays, Hewitt plays the girl who, like, everywhere she walks, the, her hair is blowing in the wind, and a light is shining on her. Very Beyonce. Um, and... So essentially, it's the, there's a big house party, and some people are trying to get laid, like Special K. And Special K finds himself in a bathroom, locked. He's locked in the bathroom, and no one can get him out because he's in the upstairs bathroom where nothing is happening. And then the sort of, she's not a nerd. She was more of like the, um, who was the best friend in uh, Mean Girls? Who was like the goth, but not quite. I forget her name. Oh, Janice. Janice. Ian. She was sort of like the Janice Ian, but not quite as gothy and dark. But she was like the, I'm going to crack wise and I'm too cool for all this stuff and whatever. And so she gets locked in the bathroom with him. And they have this conversation back and forth where she's like, do you hear yourself? You're white. <laughs> and he's like, nah, man. What you talking about? And... <laughs> And then, like, and she's like, look at, like, why are you wearing those goggles? Because he wears goggles, because this was, like, the late 90s, and, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, like, very puffy and mace and... and Yeah, fish islands. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, She's like, you you were the kid who loved new kids on the block, blah, blah, blah. Like, you're white. And that whole conceit, there's, there's so many layers to that. And, you know, it's just like, okay, so him talking like that, obviously, is a very put-upon, clownish way of talking and he this is a clearly not a predominantly black high school that this, these kids are at like there are like maybe two black people in the entire ensemble Donald Faison is one Sean Patrick Thomas from Say the Last Dance is another um, and so he clearly like picked this up from TV it's not like he's hanging out with other and all of his friends as you saw are also white wiggers um, and just the, the the fact that at the end of it he he doesn't completely change but he does like let his guard down and the idea of like acting black but not having any interactions with any other black people was my like my biggest problem and so for me it weighed a lot on me because at that time I probably I didn't hate myself but I didn't necessarily like the fact that I was black uh this is a very common thing I've heard uh for people growing up in America and um (laughs) and I just wish that I could be accepted, and I also had weird feelings about hip-hop in general because my parents didn't, like, the only hip-hop I was allowed to listen to was Will Smith, which <laughs> I still know all the words to get jiggy with it. Um, but so I, from my parents, I was like, oh, hip-hop is, like, bad. And so I was like, why do they want to be bad? There are all these layers. And so it made me feel less than it it made me feel as though like the things we talk about when we talk about like feeling humiliated and 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 embarrassed is like it you feel as though you you aren't valued in society and one question I'd like to ask you both is you know like do you well if you were to rewrite rewrite these characters the same movie whatever but if you were personally to rewrite those characters what would you change about them? Because I, I feel like, you know, there, we could talk about the fact that they, like, the problem is, is that there's not enough different varied representations, but, like, just from, like, a creative standpoint, like, what's the one thing you would change about the character that would make it maybe a little less humiliating? I think if she just wasn't Latina, if there wasn't, like, the <laughs> one character on the show that was Latina, if she could have been white and, like, 
I would have like hated her and been with Ren and been like, this is all good. But for like the one character on the whole show to be like, who, who was that Dina to be re- represented that way was irksome to me. But I think what you're talking about in terms of like, what is shame is interesting because the three of us all had like a different experience of shame. Like for me, it was like, oh, I hope people don't see me like that. Yeah. That was, that was, yeah. that was, well, I knew no one saw me like that because I was like the complete opposite of that. I was a nerd. I was, there was no hiding that. But uh, you probably like, there's a, there's an expression in Spanish called like penajena, which is like when you like see something and you like feel like, like you're like embarrassed for them and you're like, why are you doing this? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that, well, yeah, that's a good point. I think for me it, it was, it was more so like, yeah, I felt as though maybe not my classmates would see me that way, but I felt as though they were a reflection of anyone who looked like me. And it took a while for me to get to the point where I no longer felt like I can be mad at the representation instead of mad at like myself or like mad at other black people. Like, like you I would, felt shame because you felt like they were copying something of Something like that yeah. was the part. Because, like, I also did watch a lot of MTV that my parents didn't know about when I was watching it. But, like, <laughs> I did. And so, like, they matched up. But I knew something wasn't right, like, based off of what we were seeing on MTV and what I was seeing in this friggin' movie. And also, like, that really terrible movie, Malibu's Most, Most Wanted, uh, with Jamie Kennedy, which is, like... Oh, Jamie Kennedy. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't... Now I'm, like you, Seth Rogen, or you, writer's room, are the problem. But when I was a kid, I couldn't, pro- like, I couldn't process that. I thought it was like, oh, it must be me. Uh, I think for me, I probably would have just like, made him ditch the act, but then he's still basically the same thing. Like, ditch, ditch the accent. Because really, he, he really was just a teenager, a teenage boy, but he was acting black. And that was, that was the thing that just kind of really stuck in my my craw. What about you, Ben? I mean, arguably, there's not much to change. I thought it was bracingly honest that we reach for the most hurtful words. I remember, this is, again, a fulfillment of my most basic self, but my favorite sitcom of all time is Friends, and you can fight me after the show, fine. (laughs) Um, But there's a bit when Ross, the worst man alive or in the world at the time, kind of makes a list of the reasons why he shouldn't date Rachel. Am I getting any nods of recognition? No? Great. Okay. All right. Just, yeah. <laughs> Fucking Ross. Um, and he writes this list and it, Rachel sees it and she says something along the lines of, it's not so much the list, it's that the person that you like the most in the world thinks the worst things that you already think about yourself and they co-sign it. Mm. And for me, watching that clip, I was like, Abby already feels like she is less than and then you come in, and yeah, you stop yourself before you utter the word, but you, it was clear what you were going to say before yeah. you caught yourself. But the fact that you had to catch yourself, it's just like, why did your mind even go there? Like that, that for me, I was hurt for her. Yeah. And then by extension, because everything is about me, <laughs> I was hurt for myself. Because I was like, oh man, I bet there are people who think, not that particularly, but they think I'm less than, and I already think I'm less than in some ways, and I don't need the confirmation. So I was embarrassed and I was hurt, but also I don't think as much I could change because it was true, you know, and it felt like a very true representation of an angry person saying something designed to hurt because they've been hurt. Mm. Um, So I don't think I would change it, but like we've all said, we want just more and more and different stories. So that's, I would hope there were more places where women were always made to feel like shit. <laughs> Agreed. <Yeah. laughs> 
Well, we have to wrap it up, but thank you to my guests, Bim and Antonia, for coming out, and thank you to everyone else for coming out. And really quickly, Represent is produced by our lovely and awesome Verilyn Williams. Our social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli, and our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band, Midtown Social. And also a huge thank you to Kirsten Holtz, our Slate event producer, and Evan Viola, our audio engineer, and the, of course, the producer of the festival, Asher Novick, and the rest of the Speak Up Rise Up team. Go see some more shows while you're here. Woo! Thank you, guys. Thank you.